Jiva Theatre Center in Rochester, New York, this is Out of the Rehearsal Hall. Theatre is an art form that celebrates togetherness. Since we can't be together right now, we're reaching out to theatre makers around the country to see how they're doing, what they're doing, and what they're looking forward to returning to when we get back into our rehearsal halls. My name is Jenny Werner, and I'm Jiva's literary director and resident dramaturg. Each episode will feature a Jiva stage manager and their favorite rehearsal room calls, and I'll be joined by another Jiva staff member for a conversation with a theater maker about their life out of the rehearsal hall. All right, everyone. Good morning. We are here, and let's gather around for our new greet. Today's co-host is Fran Da Silvera, Jiva's assistant literary director. Fran, thanks for co-hosting again today. Thanks for keeping having me back. <laughs> I just like to have conversations with you. What can I say? Um, <laughs> we have a packed conversation with uh, director Michael Burke ahead of us. And so Fran and I are going to keep our conversation limited to Michael's bio. So we want to introduce Michael. He is a Chicago-based director, divisor, and educator. He's a Jeff-nominated director and Princess Grace Award winner and graduate of the theater school at DePaul University with an MFA in directing. Michael has worked with Victory Gardens Theater, Northlight Theater, Jackalope Theater Company, About Face Theater, First Floor Theater, American Theater Company, Chicago Dramatists, and the Story Theater in Chicago, and regionally with a solo repertory theater and Indiana Repertory Theater. A former Victory Gardens Theater Director's Inclusion Initiative Fellow, he recently served as Northlight Theater's Inaugural Artistic Fellow and is the head of the directing concentration at the Theater School at DePaul University Summer High School Training Program. Michael is an adjunct faculty member of the Chicago College of the Performing Arts at Roosevelt University and a faculty member in the Theater Division of Northwestern University's National High School Institute. Michael's recent directing credits include The Shipment by Young Jean Lee, At the Wake of a Dead Drag Queen by Terry Guest, Beauty and the Beast by Lucy Kirkwood and Katie Mitchell, This Bitter Earth by Harrison David Rivers, Hooded or Being Black for Dummies by Terrence Arvell Chisholm, and Native Son by Richard Wright, adapted by Nambi E. Kelly. Jiva's new play audiences will remember that Michael directed a joyful reading of Harrison David Rivers' play, the Sea and the Stars in 2019's Festival of New Theater. Should we call Michael? Let's call him. All right, folks, that was great. We're going to move on to the top of scene three now. Act one, scene three, please. Michael, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to, to speak with you all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I always like to start out kind of big picture and uh, and just ask, you know, was there a moment that you knew you wanted to be a director? Mm. That's a great question. I feel like um, I want to say yes and no. Uh, I want to say that, I think I'll phrase it like this. There is a moment where I realized that that's the thing that I've been aiming at for most of my life as a human. Um, but I think I've, I've always been, you know, just 
heading in this direction without understanding that it was a direction I could head. Um, I used to love like English projects when I was little. Um, the projects where you have to take the whole book and then sort of synthesize it down in sort into a you know some sort of other creative medium like how do you turn the book into a poster how do you you know those kinds of things used to always fascinate me I loved like how can I translate the heart of this story into you know into a medium for someone else to you know to consume in a different way and put my perspective on it I loved those things did I know that that was akin to directing when I was 14 15 <laughs> had no idea um you know but like little in like live projects like that. I would always be the one that leads the group project um, because I had a ton of ideas about how it could go and why it should go this way and not this way and blah, 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 blah. And again, did I have any idea that I was directing? No, it's just the way that my brain wanted to make sense of the world. Um, but then in undergrad, um, it's where uh, those things started to like gel for me. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. There's a career in this. <laughs> I can, you know, I, I started out as a music performance major. I was going to be a singer. Um, and for a number of reasons, that was not going to work out for me. Um, and so I had a kind of an existential crisis in college where I was like, if I'm not a singer, then who am I? Um, <laughs> and, uh, but in the midst of that, I, I, I happened to go see a production that some friends of mine were in at this theater department at the school. And it kind of blew my mind open that, uh, th that was something that theater could be. It was, um, I don't remember all the details cause this was many years ago at this point. Um, <laughs> But I. Do you remember the it, name of the play, or it was it was an adaptation of the Tamer Tamed, um, except it was this is so this is back in the early two thousands, um, before political correctness and who can tell whose story really took over in a mainstream way, um, and so it was a production of the Tamer Tamed at a very predominantly white liberal arts institution wherein all of the actors were women in this production and they set it in the Middle East and used the text as a sort of commentary on, on female oppression. I couldn't tell you if it was actually good or not, but I can tell you that at 18 when I saw it, it was mind blowing because there were people hanging from the ceiling and all this stuff and so many images and ideas. And I just had no idea that, that theater could be so imaginative, that it could be so inventive. Um, and suddenly I saw in front of me a place for all of these weirdo ideas that I had always had that were somehow funneled into English projects, um, you know, for years but I can't do English projects for a career. Suddenly I was like, oh my gosh, wait, yes, I can. It's this, I can make plays, I can do this. Um, and then I turned over to the dark side and never looked back. Um, was that the first time that you'd ever seen a play or? It wasn't the first time I'd ever seen a play, but I don't, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee um, and there's not a ton of theater in Nashville. Great music, 
great vibes, great town, just not a lot of theater. Um, and so it wasn't the first time I'd seen a play, but it was definitely the first time I'd seen a play with any sort of actual, real, imaginative vision behind it beyond photorealism. Um, and that sort of was just eye-opening. Um, and then, yeah, and then I was like, oh, I can do whatever I can imagine. Oh, game, now we're on, we're gonna play. Um, That's so yeah. lovely. Yeah. I think that is that really speaks to you know the um, inventiveness of theater and the way that stories are told and how there's there are so many different ways that you can approach theater. Um, where was that that you were in undergrad? Uh, Butler University in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, a little large. We got a basketball team that a lot of people have heard of. Uh, that's like our big claim to fame. Yeah. Yeah. Great. It's always in college as well where mm-hmm. <laughs> you have the experience and you're like, oh my God, there's yeah. you know, the that's world cool. my oyster. <laughs> it's it's eye opening and it's exciting and yeah, and you get to just test a lot of things and try a lot of things and fail in a lot of things. It's a good time. Highly recommend. <laughs> Yeah, and I think I think professors encourage that, right? They encourage you to um, to invent new things to to try out, you know, do totally. nobody's ever done before. At least you think nobody's ever done before, right? right? <laughs> but someone probably has, and it was probably in the early 1900s, and it was probably in Russia. But that's yeah, <laughs> absolutely right. Very possibly, <laughs> or it might have been in the 1960s in New York City. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And it was Richard Foreman. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, we worked together only briefly, uh, and it was this, this past fall in our Festival of New Theater. Um, it was such a wonderful experience having you in Rochester and working on Harrison David Rivers' play, The Sea and the Stars. Um, and that's the only, the only thing that our audiences have seen of your work. I've done a little Googling of you <laughs> and seen some of your, um, the pictures of your work online. And uh, the thing that I was um, struck with what, was how rich and bold the colors are, how it seems to be sort of, there's, I don't know, it felt like physical structures seemed like more of a metaphor than a real, you know, a real physical structure, at least of the pictures that I saw. And I just wondered if you would talk a little bit about what your aesthetic is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a really, uh, really apt uh, description. I tend to, I guess to start, I'd say this, I am fascinated by you know, stories, uh, I, I'm fascinated, I'm fascinated by stories in general. Um, but particularly I'm really intrigued by stories where people are attempting to navigate, uh, you know, worlds that aren't built for them. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an artist of color. I'm a black artist. I'm a queer artist. Um, uh, and 
so that that idea of like how do we move through this world how do we make sense of this world how do we navigate and overcome this world when so many insidious and invisible aspects of this world are designed to keep me and those like me underfoot and out of the way and invisible um and so the the things that i tend to be drawn to are stories that sort of drive right into the heart of that conversation. And a lot of those conversations are actually really and truly about the fact that what I see and recognize as normal and truth may not be what you see and recognize as normal and truth. And is there any sort of thing as objectively true reality? Um, it's something that I love to ruminate on. Um, but that sort of manifests in my work in a sense that I'm less interested in creating that sort of uh, third person omniscient voyeuristic universal experience of a moment. Um, because I don't know that that's a thing that actually exists. I think we are always watching and experiencing something through a specific character's lens of their experience. And so my, I tend to lean in, in design conversations into amplifying those scenic elements that might be, you know, that might be contorted or warped or, or whatever by the experience of, the, of whomever the story is about. Um, for example, uh, a few years ago, I did a production of uh, Richard Wright's Native Son. Um, it's a wonderful piece of work. But at its core, um, it is about a young black kid who, um, you know, who is essentially like a rat in a maze that he did not build, and he's trying to find his way out. Um, and so in our creation of this set, it, rather than creating just a sort of backdrop of Chicago, we leaned really hard into like, we were like, well, if it's a maze and it wants to be like an MC Escher sort of you know, we can't quite tell what's up, what's down, and, and how physics works. Um, wouldn't that be a fun thing to get to play inside of in relationship to this story? Um, so yeah, I, I, t I tend to sort of, I lean into the metaphoric uh, and the atmospheric um, and sort of the emotionality of my physical spaces, because I think that um, they're all subjected to, uh, you know, the vantage points of the, the people who fill them, I guess. Um, I love that, especially since, you know, creating that kind of world and atmosphere, like you're saying, you know, that begins before the show has even started. And I feel like a lot of, a lot of, audiences have the expectation that like it's when you know the curtains rise and the house lights come down that that's you know when the show has begun but you know really just walking into any theatrical space like you can start curating some of what you like some of what the journey that you're going to be taking them through totally that's some of my favorite stuff too those moments where i'm like i know like we the team know we're already working on the audience while they're coming in, you know, I like, I just, I love, I love that part of the work. Um, Cause I'm, I am 
I, this is also probably apparent in the Googling that you may have seen. I don't, I'm not a particularly, um, I'm not one to lead my audience with a gentle hand necessarily. I tend to be a bit more um, bold and forthright. <laughs> um, and so I like to, I like to disrupt expectation right from the get as much as I possibly can. And it's a, I have a great time doing it. Yeah. Um, speaking of Googling, I've also done some Googling. <laughs> I feel like Jenny, we're just painting ourselves as these like massive stalkers. <laughs> That's what we do. We just stalk people. Yeah. It's dramaturgy. It's deeply right. flattering though. So keep it up. <laughs> Um, and, uh, I came across your, your mission as a theater maker, which, you know, I, I think every, everyone who creates art should have a mission statement of some sort. I feel like we have this, uh, this idea that it's only like institutions, like these mm -hmm. large bodies that should have them. But I think we all, you know, sort of carry this inside of us and, and sometimes it's, it's difficult to sort of articulate and put into words exactly what that personal mission is, but incredibly useful once you do. Um, I feel like I've just gone on my little like <laughs> personal mission rant. Um, but I would love if you could read that aloud for us because it is very poetic on the page. Yeah, um, absolutely. Maybe talk a little bit about how you've sort of upheld that mission in the past and how you can see yourself um, going forward with it. Yeah, for sure. Um, great. So I will, I'll read it first. Um, don't judge my acting. Um, it is my personal mission to make theater that brings the marginalized to the foreground. As a queer Black man, I know what it is to see oneself reflected only on the fringes, if at all, and I aim to change that. The stories that fascinate me are those of people like myself navigating and overcoming the invisible systems designed to keep so many of us down. And I'm re like just now reading that, I realized that I said half of that already earlier in this conversation, but it, it's because it's at the heart of who I am and how I make. Um, I think that for me, it, it, it manifests in a lot of different ways. Um, uh, just one specific example is that, um, you know, anytime I'm, anytime I'm approaching a play, the first thing I'm doing, you know, aside from beyond the, uh, the obvious, like I'm reading the play to figure out what the play is and how it works and how it functions. Right. The first sort of, um, creative or rather interpretive act that I'm going to do as a, as a director um, rather than an analytical act, is I'm going to investigate this text to see where I can queer it. What uh, is, are there any places where, are, are there specific places where characters must be exactly as they appear written on the page? Or is there any room to make this character, like make these characters black or BIPOC, you know, BIPOC characters, or is there room to make this character a trans narrative or anything, you know, or how can I, how can I infuse these other experiences into this, you know, into the play at, at hand? Um, 
I did a production of, of Sarah Rolls Eurydice. Um, and I cast two black actors as Orpheus and Eurydice and, and everyone in the underworld was, uh, were white performers. And the thing I was investigating in the midst of that, because it's obviously, you know, that's a story of, of, of a young woman <laughs> trying to decide, you know, is she gonna, does she stay, does she stay at home where she knows that she is safe and taken care of? with her father, even though that home is the underworld? Or does she venture out into a future that she can't be certain of, a future with no guarantee um, uh, of, of, of love and happiness? Um, but that is life, right? Um, and I was interested in the ways that, I was interested in relating that pursuit to this, this idea of like black advancement and black success and black love, right? The world as it's set up wants to keep, you know, prefers that we stay quiet, that we stay behind closed doors, that we stay inside and, you know, um, you know, and I, and I thought that was a really fascinating conversation to layer into the, you know, into the conversation of Orpheus and Eurydice. And it, you know, and I thought it worked really well. We had some really great post-show conversations about what were the intersections happening in that play, um, just by, you know, just by having these actors of color in this narrative where typically they wouldn't necessarily be. If you look at photos of Sarah Rules Eurydice from around the country, it's had a bajillion productions. It's not often that you see a Black Orpheus and a Black Eurydice. Um, <clears throat> So that's like one one way that I sort of attack that in my work pretty regularly. Um, but then also, I you know I'm just very particular about the the kind of plays that I pitch and the kind of plays that I direct. Um, I am less inclined to you know to simply do a play just because it's coming across my desk. I I take you know I really consider does this does this really marry with the rest of the rest of the work in in my canon you know my oeuvre i guess is is the word um uh but also like you know does this place speak to to my sense to my sensibilities you know um and i have a wide range of things that fall within that you know that fall within that if you look backward down my 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 resume track you know i think i've, I've got a pretty good track record of, of hitting things that that fit really well within uh you know this space that i want to work um but there's still quite a big variety of what those things might look like um but for, I, I guess for me, it really is about just from the get, from the moment I'm sitting down and having a conversation. Like when Jenny called me about the sea and the stars, um, I read that play and, was, and immediately was like, absolutely, yes. There's, there's no way I'm not doing this because it fits so well inside of this thing that, that, you know, that drives me to create, that drives me to keep making. Um, <laughs> people of color trying to navigate grief um, and, 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 and figuring out how to move through a world. And, and it's a beautiful play. Um, so yeah, I, that's my hopefully coherent answer to that question. <laughs>
Absolutely. Well, and you know, the sea and the stars and you're at a sea both have music um, mm -hmm. at the heart of them. And I'm just, I'm also struck by the fact that you grew up in Nashville, such mm -hmm. a huge, hugely, um, uh, influenced by music. Um, do you find that music plays a big role in your work as well? Yeah, absolutely. So here's the funny thing about me as a human. I am an auditory learner. Like the way that I make sense of things is is my is my listening channel first. Um, and so I had I've had to sort of creatively learn how to translate some of these translate plays as I'm encountering them into auditory experiences to help me understand the thing that's happening in my head as I read. So I actually, I make a playlist for every single play I direct. Um, and they're, they're long and exhaustive, like three, four hour playlists that, um, that sort of track how I am experiencing my way through this story. The, w the way that it feels to me, I try to find these auditory clues um, or signifiers that sort of help me navigate the trajectory of the thing as I'm attempting to make directorial sense of it. Um, and so even before I get into the room proper, sound and music is already playing a huge part in the inception and creation of the work that I do. But yeah, I'm definitely inclined uh, musically inclined in my in my creation of the work and then in the work itself um, which makes me really fun to work with um, if you're a composer sound designer <laughs> do you share these playlists with you know your actors or playwright or Ooh, every once in a while but most of the time I keep them just for me um, because even though they're helping me though they are helping me understand how I'm making sense of the world or a scene or like, yeah, this scene wants to, f it, it wants to feel like this for this reason. And so here's the, you know, I was working on a play called Still by Jen Silverman, a lovely little quiet odyssey about a, a, a woman who has a stillborn child. And it is the stillborn baby's adventure to find his mother that he never met. Um, and it's a beautiful little piece. Um, there was one day, one day early on in that process where I was struggling to make sense of what the thing was. And, and so I was ruminating and ruminating and thinking and thinking. And then it hit me. I was like, oh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. I know exactly what this is. This is, an, this is a quest. It's an adventure. I know exactly what that sounds like. I'm going to go hunt. And I found this, this particular track that had popped into my head and I listened to it and I was like that. And then suddenly the whole play unlocked and I knew I had a sense of what I was looking at in a way that I was struggling to do, um, you know, just on my own steam. Um, so like, I don't know, music unlocks things for me, um, for sure. That's so, I, I love that, you know, we all come to our understandings of text in different ways. 
Um, and if some, if musicality, which brings another sense into the room is what helps unlock things, um, that's really, that's exciting. Um, and it probably also influences, I'm sure influences the way that the pacing of your direction or, I mean, I'm sure it, it beyond kind of unlocking the, the meaning of the text, I'm sure it has other impacts as well. For sure, I think that's totally right. That it it, it helps me, it, it helps me see. Okay, this scene, it's a chase scene. So even so, I've you know in my mind, like in my in inside my mind, I've got you know I under I like I feel this. I know what this feels like it's it's da da. And now as I go to work in the room, I'm trying. You know, I know that this is the thing I'm aiming at. It wants to feel have this similar kind of feel with what I've got in front of me, which is these two actors and this argument. You know, how can I create this argument? in this it gives me the same jump and thrill as this you know as this chase scene and then we're off you know and then we're off to work and having a blast that's so great and there's a you know you're talking about silence there's a musicality in silence as well right totally the rest right yeah um and and you know and 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 we we know this but like every play has its own rhythm, its own its own speaking rhythm, but also its own rhythm of of not of not speaking. It silences, it's pauses, it's, it's pauses, it's you know those kinds of things. And um, I think it's I also think it's funny that like we as um, as an American people and our um, our sort of oral history and tradition. We as a, we as a people tend to listen to the sound of things more than the the meaning of things, and we watch we watch intention and intentionality, and uh, uh, the 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 sort of impactfulness of of speech more than we listen to the word for word verbatim you know verbatim meaning of speech which is how our politicians can sometimes get in front of us and seem to say really great things that sound really awesome until we squint at them and, and like, wait, what did you actually say? I don't, did you say anything? I don't know if you did. I think you just said, um, whatever. Um, but I find that fascinating because I, I do think that, you know, there's so, so much of the work that we do is about clarifying language, right? But I think in that work, what we're actually doing is, you know, we're clarifying everything that's happening underneath the language so that the language makes sense because what we're really watching and paying attention to is all of that stuff that the language is writing on top of. And, um, you know, and you know, why, why would we say that specific word? Well, because of this reason. That, that reason is the thing that I'm actually watching, not the word itself. All right, folks, we're going to take 10. 10 minutes, please. This conversation feels like a huge metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> um, a huge, like, brilliant metaphor for what's, you know, going on right now. Um, and speaking of pauses... Um, yeah, so theater is on a huge pause right now um, mm. with, you know, very ambiguous 
start dates in 2021. Um, we'll all be hopeful about that. Um, but if, you know, the, the pandemic um, has done anything positive for us right now, it's sort of given us the opportunity to reflect um, and to, you know, start either making like actual changes or thinking about changes that we can sort of enact once theater does um, really come back full force. Um, what do you think are some of the changes we have an opportunity to make during this time? Uh, and I know that's sort of like a huge <laughs> meaty question. Yeah, um, it's a good question though. <sighs> I mean, truthfully in my heart, I, I just, I think it's, we're due for an almost entire systematic overhaul. Um, in how we work, how we create, where we place our value in the work that we create, um, and who gets to create that work, um, and who has space to create that work. I think that, you know, in the past, this has, our industry has been an industry of, of gatekeepers. There's a very select few people that hold inordinate amounts of power um, and decision-making prowess that get to determine who gets to come to the table, um, what's going to be on the table in the first place. You know, they're deciding what the people want to see before the people see it. Um, and they're deciding who the people get to hear from before they get to hear it. Um, and I think, and, you know, they're placing the most importance on, you know, the, the, the value of their buildings, the value of their spaces, um, rather than really valuing the one thing that is required for any of us to have jobs, and that is the artists that are making the work in the first place. You know, I can't direct if there aren't actors. Institutions can't produce plays if there aren't actors. Um, or, you know, or directors or designers. And I know we all know this in our, in our hearts, but I think, you know, we have, we have slowly found our way to this point where so much of the institutional overhead and ensuring that the buildings can stay open and, you know, the, the, the goals can be met and the ticket sales can reach their, their certain, you know, uh, income, whatever, you know, that those things have come at the expense of, you know, really taking care of the artists that are coming to the doors. There, you know, more artists are freelance artists than ever have been before because there are no companies anymore. There are no... I mean, there are no companies of there are, there are, but not nearly as many. Um, and so I think there's that sort of institutional side of it, um, where I think we have this opportunity now to really reconsider the values and priorities uh, of our institutions and, and trying to reorganize a bit to get our artists, you know, the the central place that they deserve and i think that uh rolls into a larger conversation about um you know who are those gatekeepers 
Um, most of those gatekeepers are middle-aged or older white men. A lot of them are. Um, and we've certainly seen in the last five or so years a big, you know, the pendulum is starting to swing because we're, we're hitting this age where there's a lot of turnover, right? Um, a lot, most bigger regional theaters started in the 60s, 70s or whatever. And the people that rose up through those ranks then are now getting toward retiring age. And so we're starting to see a, a, quite a large turnover in artistic leadership in our field right now. And with that, um, we are, you know, we're, we're seeing a large calling for diversifying, uh, you know, uh, who holds those positions. Um, you know, so we're, so we're seeing growth in that department, but I still think at the end of the day, the, the people in the positions of power do not reflect the people that they're trying to reach. Um, which I think is, a, it's, it's a problem ultimately. Um, Cause I, you know, in my heart, I believe if we are all 501c3 nonprofit service organizations that are indeed providing a service to our community, what community can we serve if we don't have representation from that community? Um, and, you know, the answer is the community that we are serving right now, which is predominantly middle-aged or older, wealthier than not white America. Um, and the select few of us that have managed to kick down some gate or door to get into those rooms and a part of and become a part of those conversations. But even then, we're still, for the vast majority of us, still only playing to these certain demographics and subsects. Um, which uh, then relates to the, the, the biggest, most glaring thing that I think needs to change right now, which is, is just we have, to, we have to decentralize white normativity as the sort of behavioral norm that everyone must adhere to. And to do that, it means we need to, we have to reorganize, we have to redistribute um, uh, how these power dynamics play out and get other people into the room and fuse these spaces with more, with more with different bodies from different experiences, um, different cultures, um, different backgrounds, whatever, um, in order to begin to envision a world where that can hold a multitude of experiences and not simply demand that people adhere to this one very narrow experience and call them difficult or problematic or whatever when someone has the audacity to speak to the fact that whatever contorting they're trying to do to fit in is not working for them anymore. Um, I think, uh, uh, and that, and that looks, that looks, you know, that looks like, it, it, I don't know what it looks like exactly other than <laughs> we've got to, we have to bring in new blood. Um, yeah. So many of the things that you're saying, Michael, are, I mean, I feel like I want to respond to so much of it. it um, it's because this is, this is a huge conversation that I think what's happening right now across the country is in a, is um that uh particularly white people i think are are recognizing the harm that um that the systems that are in place um 
are doing, right? Um, but I, I think, you know, for as long as I can remember, theaters have been talking about um, needing to diversify, mm -hmm. right? But I wonder what makes this moment different. Does, is there anything that makes this moment different, do you think? Yeah, yeah. So I think, uh, I, I so appreciate you, you starting with, with that, with this, with this idea. Um, cause you're right. I think theaters, many, many, many institutions all over the place have for years been, and not even just theaters, but like companies in general in this country have been, you know, talking about diversity and inclusion with more and more regularity. Um, but I, uh, I saw something on Twitter the other day that made me laugh because of how true it felt. And it was essentially the idea that diversity and inclusion are just institutional thoughts and prayers. And it struck me so hard um, because that's essentially what it is. All of these institutions yeah. have, you know, they've had trainings and they've had initiatives and, and all, you know, all of this stuff that is in, in their own way are all like band-aids and we keep slapping band-aids on a gigantic festering gangrened wound that we have as this country you know, in this, in our field, right? And and we keep thinking these little band-aids are gonna, are gonna fix it. Um, when actually what needs to happen is we just have to amputate the whole daggone leg and build a new leg to stand on. It's a really tricky conversation because I know that like, a large percentage of the of the issues that are that are coming up right now uh that are being brought to to people's attention right now are not explicitly ill-intended malicious things but i think we have to you know we have to look at that and look at the hard truth of that and even though it's not intentional you know the act still the the the, the system still has impact that is real and true regardless of intent. Um, and I think that is something that p is different right now that people are beginning to, to really be conscious of that, you know, it's because I think all so much of those diversity and inclusion conversations in earlier, uh, you know, early in the past few years have been really geared about, you know, it's not our intent to do this. So we're going to do this workshop so that we can come out better on the other side. And I think we're, we're now really starting to understand that intent and impact are different things. Um, and we're starting to take responsibility for the impact. And then I also think we've all had the great fortune of being trapped inside our homes for the last three to four months. Many of us without work, um, many of us without consistent work, certainly the vast majority of us without a work life that, that resembled what we used to do. We're not running around as much. We're not as distracted. Um, it's not, you know, and I think because of that, everything that's going on in this country that, that began over Memorial Day weekend with the murder of George Floyd, um, 
and has continued through the entirety of the month of June and into July and will continue, I'm, I'm imagining, for many months to come until, it, you know, until things change. Um, but I think the, the big difference is that I think in all of the moments prior to this, because this certainly isn't the first time that Black people have been unjustly murdered by police or other white vigilante human beings, um, but this is the first time that it's happened while everyone else has also been oppressed. We're being oppressed by a virus right now, oppressed, right? All of these, like, you know, we're trapped at home, we can't be distracted, and we can't, you know, like, I think this moment has shown us in so many different ways that There are systems at play in this country that pretend to have our best interest at heart, but really don't. All right, everybody, we are back from break. We are back from break. We're going to pick it up from the top of Act 2. Places for the top of Act 2, please. If everything that you're talking about comes back to these systems that have been built, right? These, these systems that have been built that um, privilege a certain few. Um, and uh, that uh, that now that that right now no system is working. Like every single system in this country feels like it is um, broken. You know, the it's working for Jeff Bezos. Say that. Oh, except for working for Jeff Bezos. It's, it's yeah. working for, for DT. Right. It it works. It works for some people right? Some people, but not large groups of people, right? Because the people who work for Jeff Bezos are not being taken care of, right? So every system we feel like, you know, capitalism, um, arts and entertainment, uh, the health system, every system feels like it's, it's limping along, it's broken. Um, and so we're, we're pausing on everything, and and um, I, I <laughs> your very gory metaphor of the um, gangrenous leg <laughs> um, feels right that it's time to you know chop off that leg and create a new leg. Mm. And you know I I, um, I I've been thinking a lot about the um, uh, the letter the we see you white American theater letter. Um, that uh, in case some of our listeners aren't aware of it, um, on June 8th, a group of 300 artists who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color released an open letter. Um, and it was a call to action, a call to do better, uh, to address issues of racism within the theater, and to commit to becoming anti-racist. Um, and, and I think that part of, part of what is uh, um, allowing theaters, at least I hope, certainly is allowing Jiva to address or to think about um, how how we have been complicit in some of the harms that have been caused to BIPOC artists, in particular, um, is is because we because our system is broken, and we can't we we are not producing. And so there is a time to um, really investigate 
the systems that we want to create going forward. Um, and I hope it, at Jiva that lo that looks like a very different kind of um, world when we come when we come back and and that it continues to evolve, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I wonder if we thought about what what would that new leg, that new system look like mm -hmm. if if it were successful? It's so it's it's interesting because I feel like in that you know in that letter, the 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 we see you letter, I mean there are many 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 instances, uh, just examples of micro and macro aggressions that that BIPOC artists have you know found themselves subjected to in working in this field, and I can attest that even though. I'm, you know, I was not one of this original group of 300 that, that, that curated this letter. Virtually every experience that is talked about in that letter is one that I myself have experienced somewhere along my path. Um, and I, so I think the, the, you know, the biggest dreamiest version of this is a version where none of those experiences are happening anymore. Um, and I think and I think that really comes down to sort of juggling, I guess, who holds all of these positions of power in a, in a pretty substantial way. I think for me, it's about how do we create, how do, how do we, um, how do we reimagine these positions of power so that they can be more directly tied to the communities they serve and not simply, you know, be these six-figure jobs that people sit in for 30, 40 years. Um, I think term limits are really cool. We do them for the president. Why don't we do them everywhere else? You shouldn't be able to sit at the top of an arts institution for 40-some-odd years. Um, that, that, seems, that seems doomed to fail mm -hmm. if, 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 you're, if you, the single human being, are running the ship for 40 years while your entire community can change and shift in a 40-year time. Think about wherever Jiva sits in downtown Rochester right now, what that space looked like even 10 years ago, you know, very different than what it looks like now. 40 years ago, probably even more different. Um, so like maybe we shouldn't be allowed to be artistic directors of a place for longer than a decade. You know, 10 years is plenty of time to come in, write the ship, leave your mark, and then off you go to someplace else to do the same thing. Or you don't even have to leave the company, you know, but maybe you just can't leave the ship for 40 years. Um, I think that uh, also, I think like, you know, let's actually be really honest with ourselves about this the whole nonprofit setup and this idea that we are that we are service um because i don't think we are right now i think that you know our ticket prices are too high our overhead you know the ticket prices are too high the overhead is too high the the, the work isn't reflective of the community all the time we're not really serving you know we're serving a specific community 
um, but not necessarily a community that needs to be served in the same way that a food bank does. Yeah. And I think that at the end of the day, right, if we're talking about, if, if we're talking about my generation, the generation and, and your generation, Jenny, the generation that is rising into middle-aged and, and, uh, and beyond where we're going to really start, you know, considering like, you know, being a fiscal sponsor of something like I have, like, you know, you might have to do that for your job or whatever. Why am I going to give money to the theater that is only serving this very elite population versus giving money to cancer research? Right. It's, it's a really, really hard sell um, without some deep reimagining of what is our service and how do we actually commit that service to the community? Um, yeah, I think you know what you're saying about um, about uh, how exclusive um, the experience of theater becomes because of ticket price um, is is really interesting. Because if you look at a lot of theaters' budgets, I think are have risen over the last several years, not necessarily because they are bringing more people into the theater, but because they've figured out different ways to price seats. <laughs> yeah, you know, different systems. Um, I, I, you know, I want to make sure that Fran comes into this conversation a little bit too, because, you know, I think um, there's a, uh, as we talk about generations, I think each, the three of us are all in a different, you know, specific generation, right? Like I'm the tail end of Gen X. Um, and so as we think about how theater connects with people in all different ages, all different class, like there's so many different ways that theater is not serving, or at least the majority of theaters, re big regional theaters are not serving the widest group of people possible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm curious, Fran, if, if you thought about like, what, what are, what would, what would a theater experience look like for you that how where how is it successful how is theater successful for you what an idea <laughs> um i i think you know the what you were saying michael about honesty like that's super important to me um and what is really exciting about what is happening in this current moment is that we are seeing like an outpouring of honesty of like the good the bad and the very 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 ugly um and you know even though like some of it is really hard to swallow i like i appreciate it so much as a theater goer and as a theater maker um that you know we're entering into this world of transparency where we can talk about like what the nuts and bolts are of what it takes to like create theater we can talk about you know what like the actual makeup of these institutions looks look like we can talk about like the money the finances and and about how you know a lot of these institutions are receiving like funding for doing diversity work and that diversity work can look like, you know, one training or it can look like, um, you know, 
interviewing like a couple of BIPOC, you know, people who are applying for jobs, but ultimately who don't get those jobs. So I think it's, we're, we're in a moment where there is so much honesty and now we have to like actually grapple with, you know, the information that we're learning. Um, and I, I don't know like what the, <laughs> what this new leg <laughs> looks like um but what i do know is that we like we can't go back from knowing this information like if we go go into a sphere of like blissful ignorance after this then i guess what i do know is that like that's not a theater that i a signed up for or b want to be part of um which is really like it's a really difficult thing to sort of to say because it it is a field that I you know obviously have committed myself to um, for now and a field that I love and that I see like as like a staple in a lot of um, a lot of communities that can be positive and that can you know push people to to just like use their imaginations in a way that they may not have an opportunity to do so. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that fully answered your question, but I think like right now, especially talk, like thinking about a younger generation where, you know, we're sort of like rooting for, <laughs> we're like ready for all of like the nitty gritty to come out and to like, you know, we're in a, like a, let's just say it, let's be transparent about it. Let's, you know, don't, don't like there, there, there are no secrets anymore. Um, and, and now it's just like, let's deal with it. Let's do it. And don't, don't shy away from it. Um, I think that's what, um, like the place that I'm at right now is, you know, it like, and you, you say that you are, you know, you're with us or you say that you are committing to this work. What does that mean? Totally. I want to I want to piggyback on that just cuz you're totally right about the about honesty. Uh, I was talking with a friend of mine and I think you know this has been a really fascinating last month in that regard because you're right. It's all out in the open now. It's here, it's clear. I see it, you see it, we all see it. We're talking about it. And now you've got, you know, you've got a choice. Either put your money where your mouth is and do the work and show the work, right? Or stop lying to us that, you know, you, the theater, you know, the institution, whatever, actually cares about people that look like us. And just start telling the actual truth, which is you're very comfortable serving your very narrow, specific bandwidth of audience. And that is all fine and well and good because now I know who you are and I don't have to support you. You know, I, I don't have to worry. Um, I think that it's, it, it, this is a great moment because true colors are coming out left and right. Um, and it's making it very exciting to see like, oh, well, I thought I wanted, you know, I thought I wanted to have, get a job at that theater, but now, not so sure. Don't think I need to stress about that one anymore. 
Yeah. Or the other, or the other way around. Oh man, I had no idea that they were committing that hard. That's awesome. I want to go work there. I'm going to do what I have to do to make that happen. Yeah. And I think what's so, you know, what's so wonderful about this moment also is like, there's so much compassion <laughs> in the world right now. I feel like there's, there's a whole other, whole other world or a whole other reality that could have gone like really ugly um, and could have, you know, BIPOC artists could have just like literally, you know, just shut down <laughs> all of these institutions. And there's so much more that could probably come out, like so many more truths. Um, but I feel like everyone, or or I won't say everyone, but like most people are sort of entering into this new, um, into this new like state of just being very generous and being very compassionate and being very like very able and willing and excited to see what this new leg could look like. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think that like, um, uh, something else I saw on one of the social media, something that's rather, um, just made me laugh, but also is totally right. It was someone had posted a someone had posted the we see you letter, and then a, a, a trans artist that I know commented, and they were like, "This is awesome! Do transphobia next," um, and like you know, put it in the, the form of a joke. But also, they're totally right. The, this sort of uh, this sort of reckoning that we're having about race and racism in our field is just one of many different cancers that our field suffers from. And I'm hoping that this will open the floodgates to address all of those things. So we really do become, you know, much closer to that utopian rainbow of a world that we all dream of, um, you know. Uh, yeah. Ag agreed, agreed. And I, I think also, you know, there there is, there has always been this sort of sense of like, protecting that that narrow band of audience that you're talking about right like doing work that 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 one group of people is going to respond to and love um and and sometimes be challenged by but not too much just a little bit right mm -hmm. <laughs> and um and so knowing that also um theaters i i think are waking up to the fact that those people don't need to be protected in many cases um, you know, the audiences themselves are also saying, hey, do more of this other works, you know, really think about, um, uh, about anti-racism, about the um, homophobia and transphobia. And, you know, I think that that's, that is, that's something that, that even, even that narrow band of audience members are asking for now too. For sure. Um, at least, at least that's what I'm, hearing and i i hope that that is a national thing as well um and 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 that means that again that we theaters weren't even serving that narrow band of audience well enough in the past if what we were doing was sort of catering to an idea of who they were and what they wanted right which goes all the way back to what you were saying at the beginning of this conversation about um you know having this idea um, having this one person who says, before you see it, this is what you want to see, right? Totally. Um, which is interesting. And, and I think, you know, the ways that we think about sort of 
um, removing that gatekeeper mentality or changing, you know, the gatekeeper mentality, making it a different kind of world um, that we, we bring in a lot of different kinds of artists. And, you know, I think that there's something really um, to that. Um, and I guess I'm thinking also about the fact that this is not new work, right? This, this artists have been um, doing the kind of work that theaters are now starting to say, oh, we should bring that person in, right? The, the artists have been working at the, at the intersection between art and justice, art and social justice forever. Um, and I'm wondering in, in the last few minutes, if we can talk a little bit about some artists who are exciting to think about in this moment. Like as we as we enter a um, anti-racist post-COVID world, where hopefully you know anti-racism also means um, that we are addressing the intersectionality of all kinds of marginalized people. Um, what who are the artists that are exciting in this moment? Do you think? Oh, there's so many. Um, I, I will uh, name just a few that I that I really like. I think that there are um, a number of playwrights out there right now who are, you know, in their work are specifically sort of interrogating these questions and bringing these questions to light um, in a myriad of different styles and 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 contexts, right? Um, like uh, there's a, a playwright named Leah Nanaka Winkler, um, who I'm a huge fan of, um, who is one of the most irreverent writers I've ever encountered, who just, she, she has a very clear aesthetic um, that is so funny and so off kilter. Um, but she is a, uh, she's a, a, a half Japanese um, American playwright and all of her work is sort of digging into the, the intersectionality of that identity of what does it mean to be a Japanese American? Um, what does it mean to be an Asian American or an API American, right? Um, and, what it, and, and, and all of that stuff, like one particular play of hers that I love is called Two Mile Hollow. And it's, just a wonderfully funny, delightful send up of what she acknowledges as the white people on the water play, which are things like Long Day's Journey Into Night or, you know, any of those grand glorious plays of yore that we uplift as the great canonical pieces of American theater where some you know, where a, a very well-off white family by some body of water goes through a day or two of ridiculous family secrets emerging and the whole family burns down, right? Um, it's a thing we've seen, it's a thing we love, right? And she takes this idea that we know so well um, <laughs> and just and just sort of turns it on its head with this play that is starring all um, actors of color who play this white family um, and it really sort of digs into the double standards um, that, that can sometimes occur um, between white populations toward uh, uh, Asian populations. Um, 
um, and also the way that uh, populations of color often times sort of, you know, dream of whiteness in a way that is unhealthy and destructive. Uh, so that was one person that, that I think is, is really speaking to the moment in her work. Um, another is Danye R. Love, um, who I know, Jenny, you and I have talked about. Yes, um, but he's, awesome. he's specifically, like, interested in, um, you know, queer, Black, HIV-positive life and destigmatizing those experiences. Um, and, he, and, and it's really, you know, really fascinating work. Um, Terrence Arvel Chisholm has this fantastic play called Hooded or Being Black for Dummies that sort of, uh, that takes a, a really funny look at like the right way to be Black and the fact that that is a consideration that so many people, Black and white, actually hold in this country, that there is a right way to be Black. Um, and he sort of lampoons that. Um, uh, but then it turns into this incredibly moving uh, sort of depiction of the truth about being, being Black in this country, and that is that our bodies are valued less um, than, than human. Um, and so I mean, there, are, there are just there are a lot of playwrights out there that really are uh, seeking to open audiences' eyes to to these different experiences. You know, getting getting people to see and recognize um, the multiplicity of our experiences that we're not just you know the 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 one track version that we're fed via our news sources, right? Um, and I think, you know, at the same time, there, there are these playwrights, there are also directors that are doing really awesome work in this regard. I think of a good friend of mine, uh, Regina Victor, uh, who is a director and dramaturg here in Chicago, and they are um, a fascinating mind as it, uh, in regards to, um, you know, getting people to acknowledge the systems that are there and working to dismantle them. Um, they also uh, started, they're also a critic, um, and they started a blog, uh, a, a, a organization called Rescripted, specifically geared toward um, giving space and opportunity to young, uh, young critics of color um, to sort of begin to bridge that divide that most criticism of theater and arts in our country is also predominantly white-led and white-centric. Um, and so they're doing that work uh, and, it's, and it's awesome to see their great mind. Um, yeah, there, I, I, there's just so many um, yeah. uh, artists out well, there that are, that are already doing it. Um, I wanna add you to that list, Michael. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you are that from our entire conversation today has been about that very thing. That is your mission statement um, and has always been the way that you work. Um, cool. And yeah. Yeah. And I just I think that um, uh, I hope that, you know, we start to see you more often in Rochester. Um, <laughs> but also, but also that, you know, you're the, the, um, work that you are creating in, in lifting up, um, marginalized voices and in changing, you know, we've talked a lot about white normativity 
And I think that what, what you, like the production you talked about of Eurydice, um, removing that, um, that sense of white normativity from that play, I think is, um, is a really critical example, um, even in a play written by a white woman of ways that that can happen. For sure. And, yeah. For sure, for sure, for sure. So, um, uh, just like in a moment or two, are there things that you think audiences should be thinking about or, or should be prepared for when they come back to the theater, whenever that can happen down yeah, the road? Right yeah, um, as we think about, you know, sort of post-COVID and anti-racism, is there something yeah. that you think uh, audiences need to be prepared about? Yeah, I, I think in, in the simplest terms, I think if you are not on the team that is interested in communal growth, then you are on the wrong team. I think that is it, you know? And when we come back to the theater, everybody's gonna be on team community. And that means a lot of things are gonna look different. A lot of things are gonna feel different, right? It's not gonna be the same sort of comfort and ease that it might've been before. And I think that's great. And if you're not on team community, you know, there are other places for you than the theater. But I don't think, you know, I think the theater as an industry, as all, obviously we are a communal group of people um, and we are invested in one another. We are invested in the experiences of people that are not us. Um, and I think that more and more and more, it, it is becoming more and more and more and more important as we see um, many people who do not believe or think that way um, and are more interested in their own comfort and self-preservation and self-satisfaction than they are about any minor inconvenience to their personal freedom, uh, even if that minor inconvenience means saving thousands of lives. Um, I'm talking about masks, if it wasn't abundantly yeah. clear. <laughs> But you're right, though, that team community, I think I love that. And about communal growth, I think that is, that is so, um, so true. And, you know, we talk about theater as a collaborative art form. And sometimes that means um, uh, uh, collaboration with other artisans. And it also means like the collaboration with the community and the ways that are that, that we lift up so many voices. Um, Michael, I want to thank you so much for spending this time. This has been an exciting, um, uh, deeply moving conversation. And um, so I just wanna thank you for spending this time with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk. It was great to learn. Um, and you know, hopefully we'll do it again sometime. Hopefully we will. And maybe even in the same room. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks, we're going to move on to Fight Call now. If we could have quiet in the room, please. Let's take this at half speed first, whenever you're ready. Out of the Rehearsal Hall is a podcast production of Jiva Theater Center in Rochester, New York. I'm Jenny Warner. Special thanks to today's co-host, Fran Da Silvera, and to our guest, Michael Burke. Andrew Mark Wilhelm composed our theme song and is our audio engineer. Our artwork was created by graphic designer Amanda Rixtons. Today's stage manager was Matthew Lapino. 
Find out more about Jiva at jivatheater.org, and there's more on our blog at jivajournal.wordpress.com. And we'll see you next time we're out of the rehearsal hall. All right, everybody, that is our day. We are at time. Thank you so much for a great day, and we will see you back here tomorrow.